in the book of Ruth, and tonight we come to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. So turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We began our short series through the book of Ruth last time when we met, and there we learned that even when God's people experience suffering, God is present in his provision and care for them as they respond to him by returning to him. But as you think of Elimelech, instead of remaining and repenting when there was famine in the land, Elimelech, whose name really means my God is king, Elimelech uh, is the one who took his wife Naomi, that means pleasant, and his two sons Mahalon and Kilian, uh, and he left and went to Moab. The Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, and though Lot himself was a believer, his descendants were not. They were worshippers of idols. Uh, they were pagans. They worshipped a god known as Chemosh, where there was child sacrifice apart from other things that were involved. And within a few months of reaching Moab, Elimelech dies. Naomi, however, does not pack up her bags and return to Bethlehem, but she remains in Moab, and her sons grow up to marry two Moabites, Orpah and Ruth. And after about 10 years, the sons also die. So instead of one widow, which we began the story with, we now have three widows in the family. And it was at this time that Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people in giving them food, and so she decides to return to Bethlehem. While Orpah agrees to remain in Moab and get on with life, uh, Ruth, on the other hand, gives full evidence of her conversion by insisting that she will go where Naomi goes. I remember those phrases, she will lodge where Naomi lodges. Uh, Naomi's people are going to be her people, and that Naomi's God is now her God. Not only that, her commitment to Naomi and her God is so firm and so deep that even death would not part them. And seeing that kind of a determination on Ruth's part, Naomi relents and they return to Bethlehem. You know, this is a picture of the prodigal that is returning home. Uh, the sheep that is lost is, is found. You see, as God's people respond to him by returning to him, we see him providing for them and caring for them. Uh, if I had another title for last week's lesson, it would be this. You can run, but you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. You know, his provision and care are seen in so many things, but they're seen most clearly and profoundly in the regular routine of life. Have you stopped ever to think the kind of things that need to happen for you to show up tonight here on a Wednesday night at Countryside? You know, you had to decide to be here. Uh, you had to take your car or take an Uber or whatever way you, you came here. Uh, the traffic on the road, uh, the weather, others also deciding to be here at the same time as you were deciding. So many factors go into us being here at this time. And what to us many times may seem regular and routine are really evidences of God's grace and his providence. Our text tonight is one more evidence of a profound yet simple way in which God works through the details of our lives to accomplish his plans and purposes. Uh, don't let your familiarity with this story rob you of some of the lessons that we will learn tonight from this chapter. If I had to give a theme for tonight's lesson, it would be this. The God of the Bible orchestrates events of our life such that he provides for and protects those who take refuge under his wings. The God of the Bible orchestrates events of our life such that he provides for and protects those 
who take refuge under his wings. I've titled our lesson for tonight, Under His Wings, as we look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, which is the last verse in that chapter, and then, Lord willing, I'll be planned to cover the entire chapter 2. We begin looking, first of all, at the setup, the setup. Notice with me verse 22. <coughs> Excuse me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We're told that Naomi and Ruth returned from the land of Moab to Bethlehem. And Ruth here at the end of chapter 1 is described as Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, Ruth is described as Ruth the Moabitess. She's frequently described in this way. Uh, for example, chapter 2, verse 2, and then verse 21 in chapter 2, and then in chapter 4, verse 5, and then verse 10 again in chapter 4. Uh, it's, it's mentioned to highlight her Gentile background. She was not one of them. She was not a part of God's chosen people. And the more you keep that in mind, the more you are overwhelmed with God's grace and mercy towards Ruth and towards almost all of us who are sitting here tonight who come from a Gentile background. And we are also told that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning, notice at the end of verse 22, at the beginning of barley harvest. At the beginning of barley harvest. Uh, this is how barley looks like. It's more darker in color compared to wheat. Uh, beginning of barley harvest suggests the timing of their arrival. Uh, this would be late March, early April, or sometimes even early May. The harvest season typically would last for about two months. You know, barley and wheat were the two most important crops in that part of the world. And to reap a harvest in spring meant that they were to be planted in the fall. You know, barley matured faster than wheat and therefore would be harvested sooner, and that would be then followed by wheat. Verse 1 in chapter 2 gives us further information about this setup. Uh, these two verses are creating a setting where the rest of the chapter then unfolds as we look, look at it. Here we are introduced in verse 1 to a man named Boaz. And we are told that he was a relative, a kinsman of, Noah, uh, of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. A Boaz, by the way, means in him is strength. In him is strength. We're not told in what way was Boaz related to Elimelech. We don't know whether Boaz was a brother or a cousin of Elimelech. We don't know, based on this verse, that he was a relative. We're also told in the same verse that he was a great man of great wealth. Now, there are two words that are translated there, great wealth. Those also could be translated great strength. So here are a few ways in which these two words Great wealth can be understood. It could mean Boaz was a mighty warrior. That's unlikely because, as you will notice in the story that is unfolding in front of us, this is not his role. It could also mean, as it is translated here, a man of great wealth. Now, that would certainly be true of Boaz. He was a landowner, and he had hired servants to work for him, so he was wealthy. However, the same word is used to describe Ruth in chapter 3, verse 11, where Ruth is described as a woman of excellence. There it describes her character. She's a woman of excellence. All of this to say uh, this man of great wealth is rightly understood as a man of great character. Now, Boaz is a single man, or he probably is a widower. We don't know. But what a wonderful description of a single man. Oh, to see many single men described in this way. He is a man of great character. He is a man of great character. And we will see that as the chapter unfolds. So first of all, we see the setup. Uh, secondly, that brings us to the supernatural hand of God. Verse 2 and verse 3. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. 
And so she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, although that is not the main point of the text, but he can't help but notice the industriousness of Ruth, right? She can just sit with her mother-in-law in their tent or house or whatever she's living in. She can sit with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and put the tag of a widow on the door and expect local neighbors and leaders of the town to care for them and provide for them. But she doesn't do that. She's like the prudent son in Proverbs who gathers crops in the summer. She's not like the disgraceful son who sleeps during harvest. Proverbs 10 verse 5. In Proverbs 12 verse 11 it says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. No wonder slothfulness or laziness is a sin. Now, that's not what we find here with Ruth. She takes the bull by the horn as she takes the initiative to work. Uh, Let me go and glean, she says. Uh, What is glean? Glean is to collect uh, stalks of grain that were left after the first cutting of the crops. And according to the Mosaic law, the harvest was not to be reaped to the corners of the field, uh, and the gleanings were also not to be picked up. What were they to do with those things? Well, instead, they were to be left behind for the needy, especially for the widows and orphans and strangers. Why don't we turn to Leviticus 19? Notice verse 9 and verse 10. Leviticus 19. Verse 9 and verse 10. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. What are you to do instead? You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You see, this was one of the ways in which God made provisions for those who were poor and those who did not have means to provide for themselves. Farmers were not to completely harvest their fields so the poor, the needy, the widows could come and glean the remains for themselves. Uh, This law accomplished two things. Uh, What did it do? It encouraged and even commanded the landowners, the farmers, to have a generous attitude and a generous heart. To think beyond themselves and their profits, it moved them to think about others. Because these were fellow Israelites. They were from the same group of people that God had rescued from Egypt. And so this law moved them to think beyond themselves. But secondly, it allowed the poor to be active and work for their food. This was one way for them to be provided for for their own needs and do it with dignity. Isn't it Paul who writes to Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. The instruction to farmers in Leviticus 19 really reveals a tender heart from God's side, doesn't it? And what is true in the life of ancient Israelites is also true in your life and, and mine. And as you look back at your life through the joys and sorrows of your life, you see the gentle and tender hand of God. Imagine if we were held accountable for every little sin that we committed. We wouldn't be here. No, God has been tender and he's been gentle with you. At that event, that person, that experience, which did not make sense when you were right in the middle of it, suddenly began to reveal to be gracious, the gracious hand of God once you were out of it. And notice also Ruth's attitude as a younger widow to care for Naomi, who is the older widow. Ruth is not merely satisfied that she's now in Bethlehem, that she's now with Naomi. No, she wants to use her abilities to provide for her and for Naomi. And Naomi on her part, as we saw, grants her permission Go back to Ruth chapter 2. 
Ruth then departs and then arrives in a field where there are reapers as she gleans after them. Uh, the text tells us, verse 2, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. That's verse 3. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. The literal translation of that second phrase is this. And her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field of Boaz. Oh, you might wonder what kind of a translation is that. This is what it says. And her chance chanced upon the allotted portion of the field of Boaz. Her chance arrival at a field is described by words that seem redundant when you look at it at the beginning. Her chance chanced upon. Uh, today, the literal translation of that would be by a great stroke of luck. Luck? Are you kidding me? What, what about Proverbs 16.33? Does it not say the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord? Even the way the dice falls is determined by the Lord. How can you say this is luck? You see, what this is, is a deliberate rhetorical device that the storyteller is employing. And by attributing Ruth's presence in Boaz's field to chance, he's really forcing you and me to sit up and take notice of what is actually going on here. There's an irony here. And by giving a purely rational explanation, the narrator of the story is really screaming, and this is what he's saying. How can you miss the supernatural hand of God here? Can you see the hand of God at work? This is no chance. This is the providence of our great God. This is the supernatural hand of God. This is the same supernatural hand of God that first of all in chapter 1 sent famine into the land. This is the same supernatural hand of God that later provided food. Uh, this is the same supernatural hand of God that provided Naomi and Ruth and brought them from Moab to Bethlehem. And this is the same supernatural hand of God now guiding Ruth to be in the portion of the field that belongs to Boaz. Can you think about this? Ruth is one of those who is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. I don't think I would be stretching it too much to say that that chance encounter in that field 3,000 years back brought them both together and eventually from their union brought the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. And through his coming and through his death on the cross accomplished salvation for you and for me. The supernatural hand of God. Well, let me stop and ask here. How have you seen the supernatural hand of God in your own life. The family in which you were born. Some of us are born in, were born in godly homes where we heard the gospel since we were little. What a great privilege. Others perhaps not born in such families and have made the decision that we're going to raise our children in a godly home. The family in which you were born, the friends and relatives that were a part of your life, the places you have lived, the people who are your close friends, that individual who shared the gospel with you, or the job that you've had. Those many times you were protected by God when you just missed that accident that just took behind you. The individuals that God brought into your life as a believer, oh, there was no accident. There is no such a thing as chance in the believer's life. God is supernaturally orchestrating things to accomplish his purposes and we are an active part of that plan. You know, as the story unfolds, we will see this providence of God in two ways. Uh, we will see it in the fact that Boaz is a kinsman. That is, he's a close relative of Elimelech. He was from the same clan, the text tells us. And we will see it in the fact that Boaz was a tender a generous and a gracious man. The setup, the supernatural hand of God, 
Thirdly, the superabundant grace of God. The superabundant grace of God. We'll enter now three episodes of conversations. First, between Boaz and his harvesters. Second, between Boaz and Ruth. And the third episode, between Boaz and his harvesters again. And as, you, as, as we go through these texts, these 13 verses, uh, don't miss the fact of the superabundance of God's grace that you see poured out in these 13 verses. First of all is the episode of Boaz and the harvesters, verse 4 to verse 7. You know, we've heard about Boaz a couple of times now, and we're finally introduced to him as he speaks his first words, verse 4. Uh, we have been prepared for his arrival, and now he speaks. And the first indication of the shift in the tone of the narrative is when Ruth asks Naomi for permission to glean. Uh, this now is the second indication as you hear Boaz greet his lead servant, verse 4. You immediately sense an upbeatness about the atmosphere. There is an excitement in the air. May the Lord be with you, he says. The Hebrew phrase is actually two words, and it begins with the word Yahweh. It just says, Yahweh, be with you. Uh, coming from the owner of that land, it is a great reminder of who really is in charge and who is always with them and who is the source of their provision. The workers on their part respond, may the Lord bless you. But in Hebrew, it's, it's, it is written this way, may he bless you, Yahweh. The greetings, in a way, begin and end with the word Yahweh. What an appropriate honor and respect for God. We begin and end with God. Uh, the greeting also reveals some, the work environment uh, in, in the field and the relationship that Boaz shares with his servants. His workers loved him and had mutual respect for him. Someone has said, you can often tell the real character of a man in authority by seeing how he relates to his staff and how they think of him. Now that reveals the real character of man. Boaz is a, is a good boss. He's a godly boss, but he's also an attentive boss. And we see that it does not take much time for him to notice that there is someone among his reapers who is not a part of the team, verse 5. He does not ask who is the who the young woman is, meaning what is her name, but notice what he asks at the end of verse 5. Whose young woman is this? Uh, that is, who does she belong to? Now that question gives us a window into the woman's status during those times. You know, they were either someone else's wife or someone else's daughter. So they belonged to someone. A servant's answer, verse 6, reminds the listeners and the readers the background of this young woman. She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. And just in case you've missed it, uh, she is a Moabite and she, she comes from Moab. She is from the land of Moab. Uh, she asked me for permission, he says, verse 7, and I gave it to her. And she has been working since morning until now. Again, a reminder of the industriousness of this woman. She's a hard Worker. She's been working hard since morning. And just when she was taking a break, you arrived. That's episode one. That brings us to episode number two. And that is between Boaz and Ruth. And that occupies majority of this text. Now, as you observe these, this exchange between Boaz and Ruth from verse 8 to verse 14, what you're really seeing is five statements in total. Uh, three of those statements are by Boaz and two by Ruth. Uh, four of those statements are before a meal is taken, and then one is a part of the invitation for the meal. As you read the statements, what begins to emerge is a contrast between what we saw in chapter 1, where there was famine of food and of generosity, and now in chapter 2, we see an abundance, a superabundance of both food and generosity and even graciousness on the part of Boaz, and even in the responses of Ruth. The conversation really introduces us to the character of Boaz. Notice Boaz's first statement to Ruth, verse 8. And the Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. First of all, he takes the initiative to speak with Ruth. 
And he says to her, <coughs> excuse me, listen carefully, my daughter. Uh, this tells us that Boaz may very well be of the same age as Elimelech and Naomi. Perhaps he was 45, maybe 50 years old. Uh, the same, why, do I, why do we think that? Because the same word daughter is used earlier by Naomi for Ruth. This also explains why Boaz seemingly does not have any romantic thoughts towards Ruth to begin with. So he takes the initiative of talking with her. But secondly, he instructs her not to glean, verse 7, in another field. Rather, verse 8. Uh, don't go from this field, but stay in this field with my maids, he says. I want uh, to, you to keep your eyes on the field in which they reap and stay behind them. Now, why do you think there was a need to specify this? You know, many landowners who existed during that time, although they knew the law, they had found ways to get around the law. Uh, they would either not leave any sheaves uh, behind for gleaning, or they would cut the corners of the field too close, leaving no sheaves for the needy to gather. So they kept the law as far as it was the written law, but they did not keep the spirit of the law. They wouldn't directly say to the needy that they didn't want them. They would just not make any provision for them. You know, we can be tempted to be like that, can we not? Oh, I did those things. I checked off. I showed up for this ministry. I served here, but missed the spirit of the law. So Boaz made it a point to let Ruth know that he wanted her to be there. And that he made it clear to her that he did not want her to go anywhere else. She was welcome there, and he wanted her to be in this field. So firstly, his initiative. Secondly, he, didn't, he instructs her not to glean in another field. Thirdly, we see him going above and beyond in wanting her to be in this field. Notice verse 9. He tells her what he has instructed his servants. Uh, he has instructed his servants not to touch her. He wants her to feel safe and Secure. He wants her to feel protected in this field. Uh, perhaps as men, we can miss what Boaz is trying to say to Ruth here. But remember, Ruth is a single woman. She's a young woman, and also she's a foreigner. A prime target for people to take advantage of her. But Boaz wants her to feel protected in this field. You know, this also gives us a uh, peek into what was going on in the culture during that time. If you remember Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those times there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God's law was not the standard for those people. Man was the standard, which meant what was right was not decided according to God's law, but man decided what was right. And in such a culture, there was rampant idolatry, immorality, fornication, sexual promiscuity, evil, wickedness, and violence. That, all of those things were rampant in the culture. And at the end of the day, a woman was not safe. And Boaz is telling Ruth, Ruth, here in this field, I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel protected. And then fourthly, I want you not only to feel protected, but notice verse 9, I want you to also feel that you were provided for. When you're thirsty, I don't want you to go to the town to get water. I want you to draw water from the same jars where my servants are drawing water from. And as you hear that, you, you begin to see Ruth's position elevated here. From someone who is falling behind the reapers to someone who is now with them, drinking from the same source. How does Ruth respond? Notice the first statement from Ruth. To say that she was completely blown away with Boaz's generosity is to really put it lightly. Verse 10, she falls on her face and bows to the ground as she says, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And the word for bow is the word that is translated also as worship. Uh, this is worship in action, 
mentioned only here in the book of Ruth. Uh, this was really not Ruth worshiping Boaz, but the posture was that. Uh, this was a recognition of Boaz's position and authority, and this was a way of honoring him in an external way. Ruth is keenly aware of her status as a foreigner as well. She is an alien, and she is asking, how is it that you take notice of the unnoticeable? How is it that you take notice of the unnoticeable? Why are you doing this? Notice Boaz's response, verse 11, as he explains why he has shown such favor to Ruth. He has heard about some things about her, he, sh he, she, he says. Uh, two things in particular have stood out for him. Uh, first of all, he says, her extraordinary kindness to her mother. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. All that you've done for her. And what had she done? Think back to chapter 1. Naomi had released both Orpah and Ruth of any and all obligations they might have. Orpah took the natural and the rational path, while Ruth really was the one who took the radical and what seems from a man's perspective an irrational path. Uh, to the known world into which Orpah went back, Ruth actually went to the unknown world of her mother-in-law. Not only that, Boaz also highlights her extraordinary courage. She left the comfort, and for the first time we know that Ruth has a father as well. She left, leaves the comfort and security of her family and people and came to a people group that she did not know. Who was Ruth? Ruth was a kind and a courageous person. Now that's from Boaz's perspective how Ruth was. But, you know, there are many kind and courageous people in the world, but not everyone responds the way Boaz has responded. So we have to say something on Boaz's behalf as well. Boaz was a godly man. He was a man of noble character. He was a man of excellent character. But in Boaz's response, we also see the wonderful providence of God. God had heard Ruth's prayer. Remember in verse 2, she says uh, to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. There's a prayer tucked in there. She's wanting God to give someone in whose sight she would be found having favor. And God answers her prayer as he prepares Boaz's heart for her. Uh, but Boaz, on his part, though, is not satisfied with merely answering Ruth's question or with his generous heart as he proceeds to involve Yahweh. Notice verse 12, as he involves Yahweh to intervene on her behalf. There are three parts to what verse 12 is. It's a blessing from Boaz to Ruth. He says, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You know, firstly, he prays that Yahweh would reward her work, which is to say, may Yahweh uh, repay you for your actions. Uh, there is an assumption that Boaz has in there that God governs the universe in a very structured way, in an orderly way, uh, which is to say that he does not have anyone's debt. God repays the one who does good deeds, is the assumption there. And by her good deeds, Ruth has not only indebted her mother-in-law, but also Yahweh. And so Boaz prays that Yahweh will repay her for her work. But there's another blessing in there. He says, and may your wages be full from the Lord. You see, Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner. And by her good deeds, what she did was she was kind to Naomi, an Israelite. She was of God's chosen people. In that sense, as an outsider, she had obligated the God of the Israelites to repayment. And this is where the second part of the blessing begins to make sense. May your wages be full from Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? He's the covenant God of the Israelites. You've been kind to an Israelite, and the God of the Israelites is not in anyone's debt, is what he's saying. And now we come to the key in this chapter. Thirdly, and this part tells us that she is not an outsider anymore. Why? 
because she and a Gentile, a Moabite, had transferred her allegiance from the Moabite god Chemosh to Yahweh, the god of Israel. In other words, Ruth was claiming Yahweh as her god, as her patron and as her protector. And to express what Ruth had done, Boaz invokes one of the most striking and beautiful pictures of what divine care looks like in the Bible. He visualizes Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as a mother bird who offers a wing for the protection of her defenseless young. You know, that particular imagery actually alludes to a mother bird taking her vulnerable hatchlings under her wings to do what? To nurture and to train and to shelter and to guide and to protect. Ruth is like that vulnerable hatchling who has taken refuge under Yahweh. Why? Because in God's presence, there is security. In God's presence, there is guidance. In God's presence, there is protection. In God's presence, there is care. If you are a follower of Christ, this is your God and mine. When you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are taking protection under the secure wings of this great God. He will hold us fast, as we were singing earlier. That is Boaz's speech, number two. That brings us to Ruth's response again, as we consider her response, number two, verse 13. She is overwhelmed with Boaz's response and his blessing on her. She's thinking, I can see how Yahweh has answered my prayer. And she's filled with thankfulness. Notice verse 13. I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maid servant. What you have said to me has brought me comfort and relief. A picture a young, frightened chick caught in a pouring rain, fearful for its safety, and then finding comfort and security under the wings of the mother bird. That is what Ruth is feeling right now. First, she experienced that under Yahweh in chapter 1 as we saw her conversion. And now through Boaz, she experiences that same comfort and strength as Boaz provides and cares for her. I am overwhelmed with gratitude that you have spoken kindly to me. And then she brings to the fore what she actually considers herself. And she says, I'm not like the others at the end of verse 13. I'm a foreigner. It's an amazing thing to me, she says, that both race and class did not stop you from showing compassion towards me. I'm overwhelmed with your kindness. I I just have nothing else to express to you but gratitude. That brings us to the third and final speech from Boaz to Ruth in this section. Notice verse 14. Some time has elapsed between Verse 13 and 14, Boaz is not yet, though, exhausted his compassion towards Ruth. He invites her, verse 14, to eat bread with the rest of the workers and dip her bread, which looks something like this, of bread in, a piece of bread in the vinegar. He invites her to eat bread with the rest of the workers and dip her bread, participate in eating meals with others. We all came in here tonight, for those of you who participated in the meals, what did we do? Do we just do it because there are some people who just love to cook? Do we do it so that we can get some money out of this? No, absolutely not. We do this because it means something more than just eating together. What did eating meals in biblical times mean? Eating together was not just a way to satisfy physical hunger. It had a symbolic significance People came together as an expression of hospitality. They celebrated occasions together. In fact, three times as an entire nation, they would go to Jerusalem. When a covenant was signed during those times, when an agreement was signed, they would celebrate it with a meal at the end. Uh, People came to eat together to eat meal and have fellowship. Uh, This was an expression of the strength of the fellowship that they all enjoyed with each other. What does Boaz do? He invites her for a meal. Not only that, she sits with the reapers, another indication of change of her status. As if that was not enough, Boaz 
the landowner, the wealthy man. Notice what he does at the end of verse 14. He served her food. He served her roasted grain until she was satisfied and had some left over. Daniel Bock, in his commentaries, writes this. The narrator hereby shows how Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion, of generosity, and acceptance. In short, this is the biblical understanding of Hesed. God's covenantal love. His steadfast love towards his people. His superabundant grace. That's what he does to those who take refuge under his wings. That brings us to a final episode that between Boaz and the harvesters, which is episode number three. Notice verse 15 and verse 16. After the meal, Boaz instructs his men. There are two instructions about Ruth in regards to her gleaning. And then there are two instructions to the workers on how they were to treat her. Notice uh, as regards to Ruth and her gleaning, let her glean among the sheaves, purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean. And there are instructions then how you ought to treat her. These are, by the way, just reminders to his servants. He says, then do not insult her and do not rebuke her. Now what we see here is Boaz actually following through with his promise to Ruth earlier as he reminds his workers how they are to treat Ruth. As you read this, as we've read all these 13 verses, what should begin to emerge for all of us is a picture of superabundance, grace upon grace, provision upon provision, a protection upon protection, care upon care. God has been superabundantly gracious to Ruth and to Naomi. You know, from losing it all in chapter 1 to now starting to, to be involved in the rebuilding process. God has been gracious to Ruth. We don't know God has been gracious to her, but he's still not done with her. Notice the last section as we look at the summary. Again, reminded of Ruth's hard work. In verse 18, we are, in verse 17, we are told she worked until evening. She has now been there from morning until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned to remove the grain from the sheaves. And it was about an ephah of barley. Uh, commentators are not absolutely certain how much this is. Most agree that it could be between 15 and 20 pounds. Which is about a week and a half of food for an adult man. Notice Naomi's reaction, verse 18 in verse 19, as she comes back home, Naomi is absolutely floored. Verse 19, where did you glean today and where did you work? Where in the world were you gleaning today? She's amazed and astounded at Ruth for her hard work. And then she's amazed and astounded at the owner of the field who would allow a gleaner to take home so much. So far, Naomi does not know who that is. And then Ruth reveals the name to Naomi. His name, she says, is Boaz. And we write back as the other bookend of verse 1 of the same chapter. We are revealed uh, that Boaz is a relative. And now Naomi gets to know that it was in his field that Ruth gleaned. You begin to sense uh, energy and an excitement in the room. The morning began with Ruth as a single woman, as a destitute really in so many ways, a foreigner going to glean in an unknown man's field, leaving empty and really empty-handed to now her coming back with her hands full. And who happens to be the owner? Oh, may he be blessed by the Lord, she says. The Lord has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Verse 20. The Lord has not withdrawn his kindness to the living. This is what Naomi says to Ruth. And who are the living? It's Ruth and Naomi. And he say, she says, he has not withdrawn his kindness to the dead. And who is the dead? That's Elimelech and Mahalon and Kilian. And before Ruth asks, how has Yahweh done this? Naomi answers by saying, 
Boaz is one of our closest relatives. He is, she says, and that's the key to this entire book, he is our Goel. Now we'll think about that more in chapter 4, but here let me just say a few things about who a Goel is. A Goel is actually, it's not even a formal title, it's essentially a close relative. And what does this close relative do? A clo- this close relative could redeem a family member who has been sold into slavery. That's one of the things a close relative does or did during this time. A close relative also could purchase a land on behalf of his relative. Let's say this relative have come on, has come on hard times and is forced to sell his land. Goel or the close relative will purchase this land from this relative and then perhaps later on give it back to him. But a close relative could also preserve the family, which is what happens in this story, by, by marrying one of his relative's brothers, or a brother's widow, essentially, also called as leveret marriage. You can continue to sense the excitement in Ruth's voice as she shares a few things about what happened in the day. And if you are a woman, you'll particularly appreciate this. They like to hear things. They like to hear reports. And they like to give reports. And that's what is happening here. Notice what Ruth shares with her mother-in-law. She tells her about what happened in the day. She reveals to her about the extraordinary kindness of Boaz that he showed to her. He told me to stay close to his servants until they finished harvesting everything. Naomi affirms that instruction and then we're again reminded of the kind of depraved environment in which this is all taking place. Notice verse 22. It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. Uh, Do what he says, Ruth, so that others will not fall upon you or mistreat you in another field. And so that's what she does. Not only until the end of the barley harvest, which begins earlier and ends earlier. She does also the same thing, notice verse 23, for the wheat harvest, which begins immediately after the barley harvest and then ends sometime in June. As we look at this chapter, what are some things that we can take away as applications? As I thought about it, uh, first of all, I think this is a chapter that invites us to praise our great God. Uh, to think that nothing in our life takes place by chance, but takes place because of the extraordinary kindness of our great God towards you and towards me. God is not ob- obligated to save any one of us, but he, but he did save you. If you're a follower of Christ, if you repented of your sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has saved you. And this chapter gives a glimpse that in the daily routine of life, how wonderfully he takes care of us and he provides for us. This is then an invitation to praise God. Can I tell you something more specific? As you go home tonight, as you rest in your bed, look back at your life. Uh, Draw out, map out the important events and individuals in your life. Perhaps that that person who shared the gospel with you. In in amazing grace of God, I've shared with some of you here, but just a glimpse of my own life. My maternal uncle, my mom's brother, he was the one who shared the gospel with me. Of course, my parents did as well, but he, I remember him as a nine-year-old coming to our house and sharing the gospel with me. And um, he asked me, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I told him I didn't. I didn't. And then he shared the gospel with me. And at the end of that time, I placed my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in God's wonderful provision, his daughter actually lives in, in, in Dallas. And he came to visit her a number of years later on. And I came to study at Dallas Seminary. And in the same year, or perhaps a year before I came to study here, he came here, he was there with, with, with her, he was a widower by that time, he was in his mid-80s, and he passed away here. And as I think of that, I began serving in a church for the first time here, and he's buried right here in Allen. I thought to myself, what wonderful grace and provision of God to think that the person who led me to cross, Christ, 
Thousands of miles away from where he did that is right here. Of course, I recognize he's with the, with the Lord. And this is a wonderful invitation to praise God. Uh, secondly, this is an invitation for those of you who are in Christ, uh, but are running away from him, loving your sin more than you're loving Christ. Uh, this is an invitation to return to Christ. I don't know what sins who of you are, or which of you are involved in, uh, but notice the wonderful care of this great God. He invites you to return to him. Thirdly and finally, for those of you who are not in Christ, uh, this is an invitation to seek refuge under his wings. Who are you seeking refuge under? Your own intelligence? Your wealth? Your inheritance? Your family? Your connections? Your relationships? And none of those will come to use on the day when you will be judged for your sin. And this chapter is a great reminder. It's an invitation to not seek refuge in any of those things, but to seek refuge under the wings of this great God. Let me pray as we close our time. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word. I do believe that everyone who is here is here because in your great providence and care, and in your sovereignty, you had them here. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts of the kind of privilege we enjoy in Christ. We are secure and safe. You hold us fast. There's nothing for us to worry about. It's not that we hold you. No, you hold us fast. We are absolutely safe in your care. Thank you for the privilege you give us to walk this life for however many years you give us. Lord, your word reminds us that all of our days are numbered. Not one of us is going to be here on this earth forever. And so help us to make every moment count. I pray for those who are here who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Or perhaps even tonight, Lord, they would call out to you in repentance and faith and place their trust in you alone. I thank you, Lord, for our time. I do pray for the small groups that we will have tonight. I pray that our discussions would be honoring to you and edifying to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.